Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 25th episode from the PJ Archive. It's an interview I did with Britain's most successful singer, who's also a national treasure, Cliff Richard. This interview took place in Surrey in 1999, when a DVD was released of him performing in Hyde Park, and he was about to release his Millennium Prayer single. I started by asking Cliff if he ever got bored of singing his old hits. No, because I've, I've had the good fortune to have recorded 120-odd songs, singles, and uh, 113 of them or something have been in the top 30. And that means that in any concert, I can pick a song that I haven't sung for four or five years, even though it's an ancient song that, that I've sung many times before. And it, I've never opened a show with On the Beach. You know, I can't remember when I ever did that. You know, it's ridiculous. And mm. hadn't sung In the Country for a while. Um, Are there so, any of your hits that you particularly like or dislike? I don't dislike any of them. Uh, I've only ever recorded songs I like anyway, but there's d- degrees of it, you know, and after a while uh, you, you'd sort of drop songs because you favour others, you know. I favour Devil Woman and Miss Unites and Carrie and We Don't Talk Anymore and Devil Woman. Did I mention Devil Woman? Yeah, yeah. Uh, th- those kind of songs I favour. But, you know, you stand on stage and sing Living Doll and you can see this guy nudged go girl next to him and you know there's a memory there. <laughs> I mean, it's fantastic. And I've had letters from people saying, oh, I met my wife and she was my living doll and your song became our song. Or someone's written and said, our baby was born when that record came out and she was our living doll. And suddenly you think, God, dear, you're part of people's memories. So I don't mind at all. If there was another artist's catalogue of hits you had to sing at a concert, whose would you choose? Elvis is probably, but the first three or four years. Mm. Um, they were classic pop rock songs, absolute mm. classics. I'm going to have a chance to do some of the others, somebody other, somebody else's records this year at the Millennium Concerts because uh, I'm breaking the, our countdown to the decades, going 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And apart from featuring my own, fortunately for me, I feature in all the decades. So I can actually legitimately do my own stuff. But I thought I'd like to do uh, either do songs that I wish I'd got first or, stroke and, songs that were the biggest selling songs of that decade. Right. So therefore I'll have a go at... Things like Garfunkel's Bright Eyes, mm. um, Adam, Brian Adams' uh, Do It For You, yeah. and Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock. I've never, ever sung Rock Around the Clock. Just to go back to the Hyde Park concerts, you did a lovely duet with Elaine Page. Yes. How genuine a friend is she of yours? She's becoming a, a good friend. We've met on a number of occasions officially, sort of thing, and got on well. Uh, but this was the first time we'd ever... We sang together on Gloria Hunnard's show when we were actually plugging the show at Hyde Park and it was the first time we'd ever performed in front of a public live and the thing is you never know how it's going to work you know I've always admired her she's a terrific professional never sings a note out, out of tune as far as I know never with me anyway and uh, lifts you up a little you know it means you've got to keep well on your toes to keep up with her and that's good for me. And so we did it, and it sounded good. That's the main thing as well. It's got to sound right. If it doesn't sound right, then you might as well say, well, it's lovely to sing with you, but it's not going to work. But that's not true with us. And, and of course, we've now been away. She came away to La Manga, where we were doing charity, a charity performance for the Roy Castle Cancer Research Foundation. And so we got to know each other over before we played some tennis together, had meals together. And so we're becoming good friends. Mm. Which other artists are you genuinely good friends with? Not many. Rock and, the rock and roll world, unless you put yourself out to 
be friendly with people, you don't really meet them. You know, you're, you're, you're in your own separate worlds. We all do our own concerts. We're all top of the bills in our own shows. You know, you meet up with Elton every now and then. I, I got to know Elton a little bit because he, his record company released Devil Woman of the States and my Nearly Famous album. Um, so we got to meet a number of times and then I recorded a duet with him on one of his albums so we did a uh, you know TV thing and and so I know him a bit but I can't say that we're friends you have your own artists on your own record label um, how many artists do you have all together we've just started we've made three signings that's all mm. it seems funny to me that having been a rock and roll singer for so long mm. that when I do get a record label the first three people I sign are two tenors and a counter tenor that's <laughs> <laughs> really ridiculous but they're all good in their own way and I said why don't we instead of you know like radio stations now narrow cast I said we should broadcast our artists you know we should give the public a massive choice if we can find an excellent opera singer why not sign an excellent opera singer mm. and if i can find the best of the blues or best of pop rock or best girls it doesn't matter just find people who are really good so that the label in the end will have a catalog that we can be proud of what's your position as far as the label is concerned well it belongs to uh clive black and myself right. him black me night so oh, hence Black Knight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, so... But are so, you managing director, joint manager? No, I'm... Well, yeah, I suppose so. I'm not quite sure my, what my title is, mm. but uh, um, I'm... I'd be a working man in it. I mean, I shall okay things, and uh, I want to know what it's doing, and, and if I've got any ideas, I can shove it all through. I don't want to just sit back and let it happen by itself. To what extent is it a financial gamble for you, this label? No, there's no real gamble. I mean, you'd, we've managed to get deals for all of the artists involved, so you know that whatever finances you put in, um, at least they're going to be released, and the record co the record companies have take they take a, a commitment have to make a commitment too. So we just have to keep our fingers crossed that our our idea of doing this is going to work. And I've always felt that if you do something well, it ought to work. You know, to a certain extent, it should work, because there are enough people out there who want good things. There'll be enough people out there who want to hear uh, a Vincenzo La Scola singing his kind of music and then interjected with him singing with a pop singer. You know, I've sung with him a number of times now, and the public, certainly my public, when he sang with me at the Albert Hall, they loved him. Mm. I mean, he used to get a fantastic ovation night after night singing Ness and Dorman, then doing this duet with me. And... Uh, I find it quite thrilling, actually, that we can blend. I know that the tw two houses will never really stay joined together. We're never going to be semi-detached. But you can actually uh, work together with someone from another persuasion. And uh, you, with the right material, it, it can blend very, very peacefully and amicably. Will you be recording on your own label in future? I think probably I'll always do my stuff now on, on Black Knight. I mean, I've worked for 40 years with EMI, and I don't own any. I don't own a single thing I've recorded. Often worries me actually, because most artists now, because I started, and I come from that group of singers who knew nothing about business, mm. and all our contracts merely said was you get a penny per record, and uh, you make the record, and it belongs to EMI, and uh, it ought to actually have reverted back to me at some point. It, I always feel morally it should revert back, but unless you've got it in writing, you can't expect that. So. Uh, in future, I think what I'll do is I'll own the tapes myself and lease them, which is how everyone's done it for a long time. All the new young up-and-comers, I think Dave Clark was one of the first to do it, where he recognised that he could make the tapes himself and then lease the tape, and then after a certain period of time, seven, ten years, whatever the chosen time is, it belongs to you again. And that means that your future, you know, if my career ends tomorrow, I have, I owe nothing 
to be, I can't release a compilation of my own choice, or uh, I'd probably get royalties from them, but they're um, the royalties will be set at the co- contract stage. You know, if, I mean, I think my manager was fantastic, Peter Gormley. He actually got the con- the royalties raised a little because he said, look, if you release a compilation of Cliffs, Cliff spends all this time promoting it. He spends the rest of his life singing it, and therefore ought to have some benefit, not one old P per record, which is all I got for Living Don and Move It and things like that. But it's still stuck there, though. So whatever we decide now, um, that's the royalty I'll always get on it. Mm. And whether that in 20 years' time will be enough of a pension, I'm not sure. Tell us about your new, <laughs> tell us about your new Millennium Prayer single. Well, it's, uh, it's an idea by a guy called Paul Field. He and his co-writer, Stephen Deal. I'm not even sure if I've met Stephen Deal. But I may have done. But they were approached by the uh, Middle England, you know, wants something that's theirs, that sort of is not afraid to say we're a country that comes with a Christian background, something spiritual. And so Paul and Stephen have um, written about an hour's musical presentation for churches to use themselves, to actually perform it themselves. And one of the tracks, one of these ideas they got, which I think is absolutely genius, was putting the Lord's Prayer, a revamp of the Lord's Prayer, to Old Lang Syne, the melody of Old Lang Syne. And uh, the minute I, I did it for them, and I said, look, I think this is fantastic. And when I wanted to do a charity record for uh, Children's Promise, I said, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to do a sort of a much more meaty, heavier, more expensive version. And they weren't bothered at all. So I did with Nigel Wright, the producer. We've made, I think, a real meaty track, very gospel-y and very uplift. I find it uplifting myself hearing it when that choir comes in, you know, and all that. And, all, and, and it's very gospel towards the end. So I'm hoping it might be accepted as a theme for the millennium for us as a nation. You know, something that will join all the cultures together because it won't offend anybody. You know, when you look at the lyrics of it, it can't offend a Buddhist or a Muslim or, or a Jew or... We're all, we can all actually sing this because all it's saying is God will you know, keep us fed and clothed and make us forgiving as we expect people to forgive us and keep us, the, keep, keep us away from evil. How uh, much do you really care whether you have the Christmas number one or not? It's not about Christmas number one. I care about number ones. I don't care when they are. I mean, if you could guarantee me a number one every year in January, that's when I'll release my record. But uh, everyone forgets, journalists have forgotten a lot, actually, that... We don't release records. You don't get the mainstream of rock and roll records or any records released in January, February, March because it doesn't sell very well. Even in the summer, if you're going to release a record in the summer, you have to budget for the fact that it's not going to sell that well. Whereas between October and December, that's the big market time for almost everything, not just records. And that's why I've always released a, a single somewhere around... August, September, with another one in November, and the October and the October being the album release. So you're all set up to sell as many records as you can, whether you're number one at Christmas or not. But, but number one at Christmas will be fabulous. And in, with this one, though, it's not a Christmas record, though. It's a millennium. It's a millennium record. And so, how badly would you love to have the first number one of the new millennium? Well, not about badly, but it would be great for me because I've actually been quoted as saying, "I don't suppose I'll ever have another number one." Uh, and I've already had a number one in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and the 90s. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I said I didn't think I'd get another one was because it's very hard to get airplay. Mm. You know, people, rightly or wrongly, narrowcast. They don't broadcast. They don't give the public a broad choice of pop rock. They say, no, 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 we are going to play dance records. We're going to aim at this age group. And that's all they play them. So there are kids who have never heard any of my records. They know of me because they can't really turn their TV or open their papers without seeing me somewhere. 
but they may not have heard anything I've done. I've, I've worked with young guys who come and work on our tours, and they hear a song like Carrie and go, who recorded that? And I say, that's mine. They go, what? <laughs> now, I think it's unfair that they're not played it to, to show them that there's a choice. Mm. And so if I get to number one at Christmas, it means that I'll be the first number one of the new year, which means I can officially say I've started the next decade with a number one, which means that I'll have had number ones in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and the 20s, mm-hmm. which pretty well puts me out of reach of anybody ever mm-hmm. catching me up. Because, you know, the way our industry is now, it's a very short-lived life. You know, artists don't seem to want to go on forever, whereas when I started, I wanted to keep doing it, mm-hmm. and I'm still doing it. I mean, I was one of the lucky ones I guess but a lot of artists don't really care and a lot of radio uh, record companies just wheel them in wheel them out you've expressed your understandable dissatisfaction with the playlists on radio stations and things how do you think playlists should be compiled I don't know I don't know the answer to it I only know that I make some good records and uh, and some that other people may think are not such good records and I just expect my good ones to be played um, but that that means that you'd have to have an open mind. A, a, a programmer for a radio station would have to say, I will listen to a whole batch of records released, and if they're any good, if I like them, I'll play them. I'd be happy with that. That means that sometimes he wouldn't like my record. You know what I mean? But every now and then he might, and therefore he'd play it. But I can't decide that for them. And even though I can win the argument, I released um, Can't Keep This Feeling In on a white label, and it just said, Black Knight, Can't Keep This Feeling In. So... You know, I was aiming at the black market. It was a dance mix of it. I made, I mean, I started getting airplay and I made two black charts. And then when they found out it was me, they stopped playing it apparently. Now, mm. I can't battle that. You know, all I can say is that I can make this record and it'll, it'll fit your category. But if they don't want to play you because you're at a certain age, then, I mean, I can't do anything about that. So I don't know the answer to it. All I know is I won the arguments, but not the war. I can't win the battle at all. There seems to be an endless stream of millennium music polls at the moment, which you're faring extremely well in. Do you take those as a real up yours to your critics and those like who compile these playlists and things? Yes, I'm never quite sure what they're all about, really. I mean, I think statistics, just straight statistics rather than polls, because polls, for instance, if you're talking to people, depends on what's on their mind at the time that they vote. Um, I like statistics because what no one will ever take away from me is that I am probably the most successful artist in Britain uh, for the millennium because, when you say the millennium, we've only been recording for about 50 years of it. But, you know, I'm now the most successful chart artist in Britain. And I'm only bothered about Britain. Yes, if I was the most successful chart artist in the world, artist in the world, I'd love it. But I live here. This is where I work and this is where I record. And it's a fact, to me, it's a huge achievement to have, to have finally got past Elvis is something I've been aiming at for 15 years or so, trying to get past Elvis, and I finally did it. And uh, no one's actually written about it. I have to tell people. I tell people all the time, because <laughs> I can't believe that no one else has got as excited. And, um, and so the statistics will show, sometime in history it'll show that, that I sold more records than anybody else on EMI, for EMI, more than the Beatles, um, that I've, I've had a number one in all decades so far and might just make it for the next one as well and those are the kind of things that I'm happy about you know whether or not you fit into someone's poll uh, it, it really depends on what you're doing if, if someone took the poll if this gets to number one and sells 10 million copies and you had a poll I'd rate probably even higher and then the following year when I haven't got anything out someone else will get which, which is fine actually it's, that's a good way of finding out what people are thinking at the moment but it doesn't actually tell you what life's about 
Many critics often focus on the fact that you haven't been as successful in America as you have over here. Does it really bother you? Not anymore. In fact, I love it. I, it's the one place I can go. I go there now and I can be uninterrupted. I can go to New York as I did in September. I can walk the streets and not be bothered. Uh, unless, of course, there's a Brit or some European who happens to be on holiday there. But, I mean, two years ago when I went, I walked for four and a half hours and I went to the shops. I, I'd marked out where I wanted to go and do some shopping. Four and a half hours, Greek round trip. And the only people that recognised me were in a big white limo. They stopped and offered me a lift, and it was the Bee Gees. Oh, yeah, I, that, yeah. I, I couldn't believe it. And I, I thought, no, I said, I said, on your bikes, I said, I really like this, this is great. But I may music, not get musically, though, Cliff, doesn't it, doesn't it bother you musically, though, professionally? Well, if, if I made it now, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm releasing a record now, at the moment, it's going to be released now, and I've told them, although I'm taking a year off next year, if you get any TV and you want me to come across to do it, I'll come across, because I can combine visiting Olivia and Pat and John Farrow, and, uh, and I can do that. And I'd like to have success there, but... You know, there's a half side of me that says, how will you fit America in? They're very demanding. It's a very big market, you know. You know, you can't just say, I'll go there for two, I'll do a weekend of concerts. You know, you wouldn't scratch the surface. And and I still owe a lot to the rest of the world who have helped me to survive America. I mean, I, I remember being uh, the top solo selling artist was years ago. Um, the Beatles were the top band. And I was, I'd sold more records than anybody else, and I hadn't had a single hit in the States. So, you know, all those things count to me. Mm. So uh, would I have to give up touring Europe and England and Australia just to tour America? And that's going to be massive if, I, if it happens in America. That's why at this age, I'm thinking if it does happen in America, I'll have more sense, you know. I'll be able to say to them, look, I cannot sacrifice my life for my career, mm. and I can't fit it all in. I can do this, I can do that, but I can't do that. And I'm hoping I'll be able to run it like that. But it hasn't happened yet. And, you know, I've also had to come to the conclusion that I may not be the right one for them. Uh, my only thing that, it, the thing that encourages me, is, it encourages me is that I've got friends who, because I work with Pat and Olivia and, and John Farrow and, and I've met a lot of Americans and they've been to see me and they've heard my records, they like me. Mm. They are always saying, why aren't you success? This is ridiculous. Mm. So it encourages me, encourages me to at least strive at it. So as I've told the record company, you know, you do your bit and I'll do whatever I can. And if it works, fantastic. If not, I'll go watch some more tennis. Mm. <laughs> do you feel you're now being given the respect you're due as an artist? Well, I don't know what that really means. I mean, as I say, we've talked about statistics and things, and in the end, that's, that's all that really counts. All that really counts is what I have actually achieved. It doesn't depend on whether someone likes me or not. I mean, I came to, a long time ago to the understanding that, you know, when Devil Woman got to number four in America and sold 1.4 million, I thought, they all said, oh, you've cracked America. I said, no, because 244 million plus didn't buy it. You know, it's a massive number of people who don't even know you exist. And you're in the top five. So for me, it, it's, yeah, it's nice when people say, give you credit for being one of the first. Um, and historians tend to go back to the Beatles, whereas they did not start rock and roll. It didn't start here in England at all. It started in America. Um, but I was one of the first to, get to do it. I was five years before the Beatles. I'd had number ones and hits and screams and the blockage in Leicester Square because of my movie before the Beatles ever got heard of. And uh, if I deserve anything, I deserve to be mentioned for that reason alone. Do you think because you've had more success than most artists, that's the reason why you've perhaps had more criticism than most artists? 
Yeah, I, mean, I don't know what it is really. I mean, I've been radical, haven't I? I mean, I still feel I'm probably the only radical rocker there's ever been because I haven't done what anybody else has done. I didn't go breaking up furniture. I didn't spit at my public. I didn't swear at them. I didn't rave around the place like a lunatic 12-year-old. Um, so I feel I've been really radical. Now, I think that gets up the noses of a lot of the people who think they are. And so, you know, and there's nothing I can do about that. I don't intend to change my lifestyle. It's worked for me. I'm... I'm respected enough to have a career. That's the main thing, really. And, uh, you know, I, I do things like audience with, and a whole lot of celebrities will come out to ask questions, and I'm thinking, I find it rather awe-inspiring. But that's an indication that they, they may not all love my work. You know, let's face it, not every artist that came to an audience with can't say they're fans of Cliff Richard, but that's not what's important. It's important for me that they see and recognize what I've done as a person. And that's what I, f I felt that they came because they wanted to say, good on you, mate. Even if they didn't buy any of my records. In the same way as that I can look at, I can sit next to Placido Domingo as I did and go, oh, this voice coming from a human body was like a 10-ton truck. And you can be in awe and applaud it even though you're not an opera fan. And so I look at it that way. Yeah, it's nice when people say good things about you, but... All I wish they wouldn't do is write me off because what they shouldn't do is, is suggest that I had no part to play in it because I'm afraid I did. In fact, I still feel that if the Shadows and I hadn't been around, you would never have had the Beatles. We're the ones that made them leave the country. John stopped wearing glasses because Hank Mar Marvin wore glasses. They decided to go out because, and I read it quoted somewhere, John saying, you know, Cliff and the Shadows had it sewn up, so they went to Hamburg, and it was the best thing they ever did, wasn't it? So in other words, we drove them out, and they came back and lammed us with a fist punch that was so strong and took the world by storm, but they wouldn't have done that. Mm. They might have been Cliff and the Shadows, getting all slacked off now if it hadn't been for me. To what extent do you subscribe to Prince Edward's theory that the British press hates success? Well, I don't know. I don't, you see, he's already denied meaning that. Um, I don't think they hate success. It's just that we don't give it as much, much respect here. I don't think we respect success, for instance, relatively speaking, to the Americans, who worship it almost to a fault that way. Uh, it, it seems, from my perspective, that if you get very successful, they like to hold you down. The media likes to feel that they create things. And um, in some cases, it's true, of course. You know, in many cases it's true. But in a lot of cases, people survive and get by and do their own thing and succeed. Um, and it's nothing to do with the press. But we are all linked. But I don't know that... The general opinion, certainly amongst the, the people that I speak to who are in show business, is that where, where we are, and I include myself in this, very wary of the British press. You never know what their agenda is. Uh, I have been misquoted and lied about so often that it's, it's water off a duck's back now. It can be very painful sometimes because, you know, I, particularly when I've spoken in the past about my faith and they've made me sound like some uh, religious nut. And, uh, and I think, why? I, you know, I'm Mr. Nice Guy. I'm just nice with people and mm. I have opinions about things and I'm happy to talk about them. But when you see the agenda afterwards, it's frightening to think that that's the interview I gave. And so, but I don't mind that anymore. I don't. Because I don't care. Because you or anybody else, they can't actually harm me anymore. I'm the only one that can actually harm me now. In fact, I fear the press less, a lot less now. Right. And maybe it's my age, you know, because with age comes a certain amount of panache and, mm -hmm. and a certain amount of cool thinking, I'm going to say this. You know, I'm not going to just snivel up and, you know, you know lick boots and, and, and say what I feel. And, 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 and so I do.
May I ask how being knighted has affected your attitude towards the establishment, the monarchy or whatever? Oh, no, my, my attitude to the establishment was always fairly s- secure, really. I, I, I've always liked the idea, ever since Barbie, when I was a kid, really, that we had kings and queens, you know, because I suppose it's leftovers from fairy stories and things. Mm-hmm. And here we are, OK, our kings and queens didn't quite look like the drawings of Snow White and, and, you know, all the men aren't handsome and all the women aren't beautiful. But as I've grown older, I've thought, what I've liked about Britain is that we have an established monarchy that is attached to history. We're all attached to history, but we, none of us have got as much proof. You know, our queen can be taken back in steps to Henry VIII. I mean, it, it's fantastic. And further and further back, in every country I go to, we'd kill for a queen. You know, the Americans would like to try and do it with the first lady, but it doesn't work. They, they know they've only got an eight-year term, or two four-year terms, is it? And then they can't stand again, and, and you think that that's not quite the same. So I like the stabilizing factor of a monarchy. I, I can't quite understand why people want to get rid of them, because if you don't get rid of them, if you do get rid of them, you would have to replace them with something else. The public like it. You know, it's the reason we like, like rock and roll singers and the reason we like dancers and actors because we can, as a group, go and look at someone who's just another human being but they just do something that you don't do. And so if you can go and look at them, applaud them, admire them, and it's the same with the royal family. They do what we can't do. I can't trace myself back further than my great-great-grandfather. But, I mean, in some ways, people would consider you a key figure, a key historical figure. How does that make you feel? It must be terrific. Yeah, but only within a certain... F- very limited field. I mean, my field would be pop rock. Yes, historically speaking, when and if people are interested in looking as to how rock and roll happened in Britain, the Shadows and I, along with Marty Wilde, would have to be involved in that. They have to have, you know, never mind the Beatles, they were five years after us. And five years in historical terms is huge. Mm. Certainly at the moment. When you started out, how did you envisage your future would be, your career would go? Didn't think much ahead, actually, because rock and roll was is so young. Mm. Um, I remember Jack Good saying, when I met him a few years back, he said, uh, do you remember, he said, we used to sing, rock and roll is here to stay. He said, but we didn't know, did we? I said, no. He said, yeah, but we all hoped it would. And he said, and it did. And so my career was a bit like that. The Shadows and I would tour, and we wouldn't know what was going to happen next. Why do you think you've survived while so many others have fallen by the wayside? Oh, I don't know. I don't know, because I, you know, even now I, I've got friends who can sing me under the table. My backing vocal group is individuals who are fantastic singers. Now, they've all attempted it in the past and failed. Now, I don't understand that, really. Um, there's a guy called Chris Eaton who wrote Saviour's Day for me. He's got a fantastic voice, and I don't know that he'll ever make it here. But he's a great writer, so I guess he doesn't need to. But it's one of those things that I can never understand. I think the public finds something they like, and they'll latch onto it. I'm not a bad singer, um, but... You know, I just, I just got a certain sound and they like it. But what's... the Longevity, though, does come if you, you can start your career by saying, OK, I'm really lucky the public liked that record I made. So you try and make a few more and it works. But longevity comes with just nothing but hard work. <laughs> it's, not, it's not something that happens to you naturally or automatically. You really have to spread your wings. You have to say, OK, I'm going to do this. I won't just stick to concerts. I'll diversify in the recording world. I'll do television. I'll do plays. I'll do radio. Um, I'll do big concerts. I'll do little concerts. And, and you have to just work at that. And I'm sure that's the reason why I'm still around. As you pointed out earlier, your image as a gentleman over the years has never really wavered at all. But have there been times away from the public, public gaze when you haven't always been impeccably behaved? Well, I don't know about what impeccable behaviour is. I have respect for myself, and therefore I have respect for other people. You know, there's a great thing in the Bible that says, um, do unto others as you would do unto yourself. Mm. And, you know, you, 
you can't really love others unless you love yourself. Not saying, not loving in that, mm. hey, I'm so cool, mm. but that you're comfortable with yourself. And, uh, and I am now, and I respect myself. I have self-respect, and therefore it's easy for me to respect others. Mm. This and, is not uh, a leading question, but have you no. ever been tempted to get into drugs or, or just have a good old booze up or take some fags? No, I mean, I've... No, nah, not the cigarettes were never a very. I mean, I never smoked because I always, as a child, I hated. It. I mean, my father used to smoke quite heavily, and if he asked me to pass the Astro, Astro, I, and I had to do it because my sister wasn't there, because I used to get my sister. I said, pass me the Astro. If I had to touch it, I used to have to have a shower almost. Mm. I used to have to wash it off, to get it off my yeah. hands. Now I'm not that. Fat, I don't have that sort of feeling about it anymore. But maybe that helped because by not smoking, it means that I never got offered cannabis, which would that would that would I would have to smoke it. Mm. And the thought of inhaling smoke is anathema for me. I don't fancy it. Are you not under pressure from your rock and roll colleagues or whatever to sort of give it No, I reckon now, of course, now I'm a big boy now, but I now know that that smell backstage wasn't herbal. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they never offered it to me. Mm. And it mm. may have just been the fact that um, I was very family orientated, so my family were around with me a lot. My mum and dad were there all the time. They probably thought, oh dear, he's daddy's boy or mummy's boy. We won't offer it to him, and I'm so grateful. <laughs> mm. Because you never know, although I, I realise that chemically, biologically, or however you want to put it, um, pot is not going to actually lead you to heroin, but it hooked into the culture, the drug culture, mm. if you're hooked into it via that innocuous root yes. of that, then I could have been involved in it. You know, you never know. But again, lucky for me, I didn't ever smoke, so I never got involved. And even now, though, with all that we know about smoking and drugs and things, there's no way I'm going to, mm. you know, give myself... I mean, who knows how we're going to die? You can die of cancer. With, Roy Castle died of cancer and never smoked a cigarette in his life. So there are no hard and fast rules. But science and medicine is there to help us. And if they say more people die of, you know, of, of cancer because of smoking, that's enough to say, OK, then I won't smoke. At least I, I've cut down one of the odds a bit. And uh, drugs, of course. I mean, if you're onto heavy drugs by the time you're 16, you'd be lucky to make 20. Is there much about you that the public don't know? No, I don't think so. I mean, I never tell everybody everything because, I mean, no one does. I mean, my, my, my best friends don't know exactly how I feel mm. and think. Um, but you share what you feel you want to share. And the public hear what I want to tell them, really. And I, I do talk to a lot of press people and I've been open and front up, up front about my how I live where I live who I've lived with mm. um, my big thing is I did have a terrible I mean I hope they leave it in though I did tell all the press to pig off when it came to you know oh, yeah. well they you know they, they are naughty really because I can understand I've got to put up with it but family and friends aren't in show business and so therefore other people who are struggling to get by on their relationships and it's not as though breakdown in relationships aren't happening all the time uh, you know it's nothing to do with them and in a way your friends p personal domestic lives have nothing to do with you either mm. nothing to do with right. me you might say how things are going and mm. you know you care enough about them to sort of mm. maybe advise or mm. feel that they can phone you and say oh, I'm happy. but on the whole people have a struggle to get through life and the press don't help do you worry about what will be said about you after you've gone though Nah, not at all i won't be there will i so they can say what they like. They just have to be careful what they say now, that's all. Yeah, well, that's fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, how many people can honestly say they know you, and who are they? Oh, Bill, Bill would know me probably best. I mean, we actually shared a house, and um, so he'd have got me on the good days and the bad days. Um, there's a number of friends. I've got three or four other friends who, who, who know me quite well, but even they wouldn't know me very well. I think, funnily enough, having shared... Uh, a house uh, with Bill 
you know, even though we kind of, you can still lead separate lives, but because you're under the same roof and maybe watching TV together or uh, discussing something you've just seen on television, that's the way you find out what other people really think, isn't it? And uh, I haven't done that with too many people. So even, even some of my other really good friends wouldn't know me as well as Bill would know me. Have you found it increasingly difficult or easy to know who you can trust over the years? No, I've always been... I've found that very difficult. Again, I've got friends who can say to me, uh, I'm not sure about that person's motivation. And I'd be just thinking, oh, yeah, but they like my last record, you know, <laughs> which is what we tend to do. You, we can easily be... You know, our egos are so important to us and they're so upset so often that if anybody comes and says something nice to you, you can, you can tend to fall into thinking, what a fantastic girl, what a fantastic guy, you know. Um, and I'm not very good at judging that. And maybe because people actually behave differently with me. That's why I like the kind of restaurant where you go in and the waiter comes and he remembers that you needed a cushion last time and you, want, you like sitting with a cushion on your back and then you notice he goes over and he, he says to the guy next door, this is the wine you had last time. So he's doing it with everybody. And I love that. I don't want, particularly, I don't want special treatment, but I like to be treated the same. It's very well known that the Jill Dando murder affected you terribly. How does it affect you still? Well, it still affects all of us. You know, there were f- some of us who were friends, some of us who were really close friends. I wasn't. A r- I was getting closer and closer to Jill all the time. Uh, but you know, her real cl- close friends were. You know, she, I mean, Alan was closer than all of us. And we were about to be married, but nevertheless, I knew her well enough to be really upset. And uh, I'm only. I'm, I'm now able to look at photographs now. You know, I mean, we've had pictures of us together at parties and things like that, and I had them on my piano, and I turned them down for a while because I thought, every time I looked at that face, I thought, how could somebody do that? It was really churned up. And, and I'm sure I'm speaking on behalf of all the other friends. That, but, you know, there's a little clique of us, Gloria Honeyford, her husband Stephen, um, some friends who live around where I live. And there were about, I don't know, eight, nine, ten of us that became a little clique and we did things together, went to shows together, had dinners together in our, in our respective homes. And it's been very difficult to try and figure out how some, someone could do this because none of us can think of anybody that disliked Jill, let alone hate her. Uh, and, and the police said to me when, when I did my little session over a couple of hours with them, they said, the one thing that's coming through is that none of you seem to know anything nasty about Jill and you don't feel anything but respect for her. And that made it very difficult for them. They were hoping that we'd say, oh, yeah, well, I'm, you know, this, this guy always d- didn't like her and was always rude about her or whatever, and we couldn't tell them anything like that. And it's made life very difficult for them. Do you have a theory? No, only based on what we know. It seems to me that it's a, whoever did it was knew all about guns and knew all about, you know, putting grooves in bullets and clearing the ba- barrel and stuff like that and how to kill at close range. I mean, I, and I don't know anybody like that. I have no idea of, of, of guns and I don't know anybody who knows anything about them either. I mean, did if you knew somebody like that, you could at least have said, well, the only person I know that with guns is this, mm. X, but you couldn't even tell people that. And so... The police are as frustrated as the rest of us, but they are saying that they. I read uh, Hamish Campbell was quoted as saying, "We are still going. We are going to continue with this, and we will get the perpetrator." And I just hope they're right because Jill can't really be put to rest by us until that bit's solved. You know, the funeral was really sad, a very very sad affair, and very difficult to be at. And one of the reasons why, because I've been to loads of funerals, one of the funerals are usually a way of saying goodbye. But this was unfinished business, you know. You can't really say goodbye to someone who's been destroyed like this mm. and for no apparent reason. It's, it's a hopelessness. And, uh, and so we still talk about her a lot. 
and, and, and I guess will for a long time until they've certainly solved this. Did it make you feel more vulnerable as a celebrity? No, funnily enough, in recent weeks some people have been asking me that, but it never crossed my mind. Because I've never had a whole parcel of uh, security men. I've, you know, I've had my life threatened a couple of times. Have you? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I, I used to go to South Africa, even when there was a ban because of apartheid, and I used to go to do charity concerts and, and raise money for clinics in Soweto and things like that. You know, and I felt I'd rather be an active member rather than... I mean, not, not, that, uh, not that protesting against apartheid is inactive, it's just... I think there's another dimension. You're actually protesting against it by actually physically doing something to alleviate the suffering that's been caused by it. And I felt that was my role. Not everyone can do that. Artists can. And so when I went to Norway, I was, uh, the press conference was taken over by the anti-apartheid group. And uh, they chanted outside the hotel, got the plug pulled. Shirley Bassey and I, a black woman, and I were doing the TV show, and the show was pulled off the, off the airwaves. Um, and I was really annoyed, and, th- and they also threatened to kill me. Now, I didn't take it seriously, but the police did. So I had the whole floor of the hotel to myself. There were army and police up there. And I slept in isolation, splendid isolation. And oh. it was a little bit frightening, I have to say. But and then I had another time when it, somebody threatened to shoot me that night. Well, I mean, on stage. And they said, do you, the police said, do you want to cancel the concert? I said, certainly not. I, but I did move around a lot. <laughs> My band were hysterical. They said, we've never seen you jump. I thought, well, I'll give this guy a real target. And it was really funny. But you, you know, you have to learn to live with that. We, we, we're not living in a perfect world. Mm-hmm. And Jules Killer may have eventually been someone who was just distorted in one part of his mind. He may have been somebody who knew all about how to assassinate, but had an obsession and maybe thought, oh, she's getting married to somebody else. He's not going to have her. That's just a th- off-my-head theory. But, I mean, uh, even, even finding out if that was true would be something. Have you ever wished you weren't Cliff Richard? Um... No, not really, no. I often wish I could do what everyone else does. I sometimes say that to people, you know. You know, when, you, when you're trying to shop mm. and you're, you're getting your cornflakes off and they want to have autographs, and you just, I've often said, you know, I just want to do what you're doing. <laughs> and they'd go, oh, yeah, I know, I know. And I said, yeah, but you're stopping me. <laughs> uh, but they understand. And, and I, No, but I've never not... I've, I've enjoyed being Cliff Richard. I've really, I really have. It's been reported that you live alone now. How do you find that after living with people? I don't know yet because I've not really been living on my own. I mean, uh, since I've got the house to myself, that's one thing. But I've only had five evenings at home in six weeks. Mm. Uh, I'm out so much. And uh, a lot of my friends, I suppose, think, oh, poor old Cliff, and they keep inviting me out. But in fact, I'd like a week all by myself. You know, just get up, stay up, do up, you know, sort things out in cupboards and... And, uh, and get on with it. But uh, no, I mean, I, I'm, I'm enjoying the st- state I'm in now. To what extent does having so many fans prevent you from being lonely? Uh, I'm not a lonely type of person, to be honest with you. I quite like, I often used to go, I've got a cottage in Wales, and I'd go up there and spend a few days there, and I'd just take the dogs and a guitar and a cassette player and, and not see anybody for four days. And it didn't bother me, really. Uh, loneliness is a state of mind, isn't it? You, you know, it's kind of almost would lead to depression to me if I could get lonely. But, you know, if you've got friends, you know, f- you know friends are people you can call up and say, do you fancy going to a movie? Or... I'm just doing some passage fancy coming around. Or they might say, like, you, why don't you join us for dinner tonight? There's no excuse if you've laid your life well and y- you must have made friends. Therefore, you shouldn't really be lonely. Living on your own is something else. All you have to do is spend the night hours, isn't it? It's just sleeping alone. 
doesn't bother me at all. Because married people often say to single people, you'll regret it if you don't get married, especially in later life, you'll be lonely. Are you finding that? No, not at all. Also, I've got a lot of uh, uh, friends who are single. Okay, we may be a dwindling number. Uh, there's a couple others got married recently, and, and, you know, and then there were four. Uh, but I kept thinking to myself, well, as long as there's a group of bachelors that I can turn to every now and then who understand what, it, what being a bachelor really is, uh, that's okay. And I've also got a sneaky feeling that a lot of the married friends that I have would quite like to be single for a year or two. Not that they don't love their wives and family anymore, but you see, single people are free spirits. I mean, I'm talking about having a year off next year, and I don't know what I'm going to do. And nobody else needs to know either. I can just go off and do whatever I want. It's a lovely, it's a lovely thought, that. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I'll always live by myself. I don't know. It depends on how I, how it, how I take to it. But so far, so good. When potential girlfriends have come into your life, have you always been wary that they're after you because of who you are and your money and so on? No, I never ever thought that. You know, I don't, you couldn't ever, you wouldn't meet anybody if you did that. If you actually sat down thinking, oh, she might be after my money, well, I mean, that would put a taste in your mouth that would say, oh, no, I couldn't, you know, the very fact that you thought that about someone. I think you, you need to pursue relationships, and that's what I've done in the past. You pursue a relationship as far as you can and, uh, and find out about them slowly. And you soon, you know, I mean, Right, Sue Barker wasn't after my money. Mm. She got enough of her own now, anyway. <laughs> Is there anyone you wish you had married? Uh, no. Right. No worry. I'm glad I'm single, and I'm glad I didn't get married when I was very young, because there were, you know, obviously you have uh, relationships, and at that stage, too, the shadows were all getting married, and that's the one time in my life that I felt the pressure to get married, because my peers were getting married. Pressure from press and media is zero. That has no effect on me whatsoever. But when your friends are getting married, that's when I was really thinking, hey, I'm getting left on the shelf. And there were a couple of girlfriends I had that I suppose I could have, you know, fallen in love with romance, I suppose. But I didn't. And so now I'm thinking, no, I'm really happy to be single. I don't want to be married. Not long ago, you were reported to have said that you fancied Andrea Core. Did she ever respond to that? Oh, no, no, I never said that. I would never say that about somebody. Oh, right. Well, that was in no, the papers. I... There was all these things in clips. Well, you can't, read, we can't believe what you read in the papers. Well, what I said was, I said, I said the cause of somebody that I really like, apart from which the girls are beautiful. Right. Now, I suppose someone's uh, yeah, 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 made up whatever they want for that. Yeah, well, they do look fabulous, and they yeah. do make great yeah. records. And yes, I, if ever there was a time when I could record with them, it would be terrific. Just to, mm. But it would have to be the right song that would match us both. When do you sing love songs? Do you have anyone in mind? Uh, no, not really. You have the idea in mind. It's a bit like acting, I've, I've discovered. Um, you, for instance, when you did he Heathcliff was easier, actually, because, of course, there, there were physical bodies there that, that Heathcliff was in love with. Heathcliff was in love with Cathy, so all I ever did as Heathcliff was think about Cathy. Uh, if you're singing something like Miss Unites, um, you think about the idea of, of being on your own mm. with someone who's gone. And remembering that in actual fact, I, f I find it really nice to think that because I don't have any particular person in mind, the audience, they don't know who's gone. In Miss Unites, for instance, it's just a song about somebody who's missing uh, their, their either wife, partner, whatever. Um, but it never tells you who she is. So right. therefore the audience never know who it is. And so therefore if you can actually capture the feeling of what it's like to be empty without someone you love, their mis the mystery for them is even greater, I think. Do you think you'll ever regret not having had children or grandchildren? Oh, I don't know. I mean, that's a question I can't answer until I'm about 90 and say, gosh, I regret not having grandchildren. But I don't think so, you know. I really don't think so. My, between my sisters, my three sisters have had five, six, seven, eight, nine children between them. Oh, I think that's enough. Do you have any regrets at all? Um, 
career-wise, it's hard to have regrets when you've had success. You know, I mean, it sounds so selfish and greedy if you can spend the whole time regretting not having had a number one every month of the year mm. for the last 40 years. Um, it's unrealistic anyway. I, there's only one thing that I wish I hadn't done, really. There was a time when I was trying to keep my hand in on acting and agreed to do a TV play. And, uh, and I did it thinking, well, I don't know whether it's a good play or not. I just do it anyway. And... It, and I don't like the idea that I did that. Because everything else I've ever done, I've actually believed in. I've always thought, no, win or lose, who knows whether the Millennium Prayer is going to be the record of the decade, I don't know. Just don't know, but it might do. Um, you do something that you believe in, whether it be Heathcliff or a concert or a recording. And that was the only time, it's called A Matter of Diamonds, and I, I felt in a way I was letting the producers down. After when I thought about it, oh no. You know, I, I was just doing it as a practice. How content are you as a person <clears throat> now? I'm well. I'm very content. I mean, I feel happy with myself. I, I feel happy with the way things are going in my career. Um, my friends and I get on really, really well. Um, I've got people I can trust around me, and so I feel really happy. What would make your life complete in future years? Um, oh, I don't know really. I, d- I just don't know what would make my life complete. Um, that's assuming it's not complete now. See, I wonder if everybody's lives are completed in different ways. I mean, I assume that people who get married, for instance, their lives are completed when they find their partner. But I don't want a partner, so my life would be incomplete if I had a partner. Um, and I've got all the things that I really wanted out. I've got the things I wanted out of life. I wanted to freedom. I wanted to be able to do what I wanted to do art-wise, um, go where I want to go. It's, it's really hard to think what I could actually add to it that would make it any better. Final question. How would you like to be remembered in many years' time? There's a... Um, a quote I've used before from a headline in a, I think it was the Melody Maker. They came and they did a, a review of a gospel concert. And it said, God and rock and roll go really, work really well together in the hands of someone who loves them both. And I thought that would be a great memorial stone. Mm. Lovely. Thank you very much. Thank you. Excellent.